attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. Today on the podcast, another classic replay episode. This episode has got to be one of our most beloved and uh, most requested guests for sure. Uh, it was uh, 25 episodes before we had this gentleman on the air and the whole time people kept asking, where is he at? Where is Elliot Friedman? Well, right now he's here today. Uh, as you know, you podcast fans, you may know that Elliot did a second part of an interview uh, 50 episodes later, but we have part one today, which is fantastic. And again, it's OJ 90 week. So I chose a few shows that were some of our more popular ones, but also ones that had connections to the deep roots in history of Camp Ojibwa. Elliot has by far the most consecutive years of anyone at camp, arriving in the 50s and not leaving. Just not leaving. So he's got everybody beat, no matter what they say. And if you know Elliot, he is one of a kind, and he's the kind of one of a kind character that you expect to run into at Camp Ojibwa. He's part of the he's part of the framework of what makes the place work. So let's get to it. Elliot Friedman, classic replay on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. Now a woman who kiss on the very first date is usually a hussy. And a woman who kiss on a second time out is anything but fussy. But a woman who wait till the third time around, head in the clouds, feet on the ground. She's the girl he's glad he's found. She's his chipoopy, 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 chipoopy. The girl who's hard to get. Chipoopy, chipoopy, chipoopy. But she can't bring her guests. Walk Carol once just to raise the curtain. You walk around twice and you make for certain. Once more in a flower garden, she will never get Elliot Friedman, this is my 59th year at camp. Your first year as a camper was? 1955. 1957. <laughs> well, when you get old, you start adding years. Sure, of course. Of course. 57. Uh, so tell me how you first came into contact with Ojibwe at all. How did you first learn about it, hear about it? Oh, my next door neighbors and my upstairs neighbor were campers. David and Danny Silverman lived next door, and Chuck Turek lived uh, on the third floor of our building. And they all went to Ojibwe, so that's how I wound up here. Nice. And what neighborhood were you in then? Uh, the north side, uh, Montrose and, uh, Sheridan, uh, Montrose and uh, Clarendon, about eight blocks from Wrigley Field. Oh, I was nice. right, at the end, right at the edge of the Sen High School District. I was closer to Lakeview, but I had to go to Sen. Wow. Okay. Excellent. Uh, and so you had a traditional camp call? I had a traditional camp call surprise because my mother didn't have the guts to tell me that Al was coming. So, so I, every night I would go to, there was a uh, softball league, a men's softball league that played about four blocks away at a field house. 
uh, outside, and I would usually go over and watch the games. And when I came home from one of the games, there was Al Schwartz with the slide projector, okay? <laughs> Who is this old person I didn't say out loud, but I thought to myself. And then I found out that I was in the middle of a camp call. <laughs> And how did it go? I mean, obviously you came to camp, but... Well, yeah, I came to camp. Um, I mean, in those days, of course, they used slides, okay? Mm-hmm. And Al would, Al would talk through them. And I mean, this is almost this is almost 60 years ago, so I don't remember much about it. So I set up the, the screen and the slide projector in the living room and went through the whole thing and so forth and so on. Left me with the Ojibwe book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my mother told me that it was entirely my decision whether or not I went to camp. But if I went to camp... I was going for, and of course those days was only eight weeks, but sure. it was my decision, but if I said I was going, I wasn't coming home. I mean, not ever, right. uh, although I'm sure she thought of that as a possibility uh, and probably <laughs> looked forward to it, but uh, I would, uh, if, if I decided to go, then I was committed to go for the eight weeks, and she fully expected that I would stay the entire eight weeks. Excellent. Little did she know you would then stay the little. Well, well, ever. there's there's a there's a story there too. If I can jump ahead, please. So in my second year, which was 1958, I was in a cabin that had four bullies in it, uh, and I we're not talking bullies. We're talking bullies. Okay. Okay. Um, Marty Salzman, who has since become a friend, Ronnie Brody, who has since become a friend, Jeff Marks, who has since become a friend, and Alex Falk, and I have no idea where the hell he is. And um, so it was a terrible, terrible summer. Uh, the senior counselors were Billy Adair and Bobby Appel, and I don't remember who the JCs were. Um, and it was just a horrible summer. I spent the entire summer at the extra table. Now, mm. for those people who don't know what the extra table is, the extra table, is, there, there were 10 seats at a table, but there were 13 kids in a cabin. So every day, three people would go to the extra, and they would rotate through, okay, so that every... You know, every four days you'd wind up at the extra, except that I had to keep trading with people to go to the extra so that I didn't have to sit with my own cabin. Uh, that was that was how bad it was, okay? Wow. I mean, it was a very, very bad year. And I came home from camp and I said, I'm never goddamn going back to that place again as long as I live. The following spring, my mother and father made me come back to camp, okay? They literally told me, you don't have a choice, you're going back to camp. Uh, there, this is actually a two-part story. So uh, I said, uh, and so finally we reached a compromise that I would go to camp, but I only had to go for six weeks. That would be to the end of collegiate week. I didn't have to be there for the last two weeks because if there was going to be bullying because collegiate week was the sixth week, the last two weeks were the worst. Okay. Ah, And so, and so we pretended like we were going on a family trip so that I would only go for six weeks. So the first first funny part of that is, of course, had she not made me go back to camp, I probably never would have gone back and given her the fifteen grandchildren that she had hoped for. But instead, <laughs> I but instead I kept going back to camp, and I and every year when she would say something to me, I'd say it's your goddamn fault. Okay, I, I don't I don't I don't want to hear I don't want to hear about it anymore. So to go to part two of the story, and then you can jump back to anywhere you want to. Sure. So then to go to part two of the story. So that year, I was on army. Okay, Artie Berman was the head coach, and Larry Rosenberg was the assistant coach. And we won collegiate week, okay? Now, I was picked on that team because I got points in the swim meet and because I was good on stage, okay? Now, remember, I'm leaving after six weeks. I'm leaving after the end of... uh, I'm leaving with one day left in collegiate week because the last day was the obstacle race, okay? Right. Well, there was a rainstorm, 
And so because of the rainstorm, they postponed the swim meet and stunt night by one day. <laughs> so consequently, I was not there for either the swim meet or stunt night. Now, if I recount the, the history of my collegiate week win as a camper, I did not get one hit. I did not field one ball. I did not return one serve in tennis, nor did I get a serve into any of those boxes that they told me I was supposed to be aiming for. <laughs> I, did not, I did not score a basket. I did not uh, catch a football. Um, I did not win a box hockey match. I couldn't do a chin to save my life. Um, I don't remember what the other team events were, but I'm confident that I lost them all. And uh, when, when somebody brought my trophy home for me, I couldn't decide whether to put it in the case or throw it away because I had contributed absolutely goddamn nothing to, 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 to the Collegiate Week win in 1959. But goddamn it, my name is on the plaque. So for those, those, of, my, those, uh, those of, my, uh, uh, of my ilk who want to come and see, I won Collegiate Week as a camper. We usually don't tell the rest of that story, but every once in a while I let loose with it. So speaking of your camper days, starting there, first of all, tell me the very first thing you can remember about getting here. Uh, the very first thing I can remember about getting here really was that uh, I was in cabin seven, and seven and eight had been built new that year. Okay, mm. 12 was built in 56, seven and eight were built in 57. So I was in this nice brand new cabin, okay, which was nicer than most of the other cabins, which were, you know, which had been around for years and years and right. years. So I remember, I remember that. I remember, I mean, everything was white and clean and so forth and so on. Danny Silverman, who was the next-door neighbor, he was a year younger than me. But he and I kind of hung out for the first day till I got uh, settled, settled down. And in addition, one of my senior counselors was a man by the name of Howie Falk. And Howie Falk somehow knew my Aunt Jean. And mm. so consequently, I kind of eased into the situation um, because he at least knew who I was. Nice. Um, other than that, other than that, I don't remember much about first impressions. Other than I was here, I wasn't. I, I don't think I was ever homesick. Okay. I, I mean, I had some bad days, sure. but I don't think I don't think that I, I I don't ever remember being homesick. I don't remember saying, "Oh, I miss my mommy" and so forth and so on, and uh, and like that. Mm. So you're a camper for five years. Five years. Seven, 10, 12, and two years and 13 because there was no 14 then. Right. Uh, talking to the camper experience, did you like sports? Well, I stunk at sports. Well, okay. The pro sure. Okay. Do I have to go back and recount my, <laughs> well, my 1959 collegiate <laughs> week or, or, or are we okay with moving forward? Yes. Okay. Well, we've, well, we've covered that one. I got better. Oh, wait, 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 wait a minute. I got better. Okay. When you came to this camp, okay. In those days, there was only softball and basketball for the older kids. There, was, everything else was instructional; it was not leagues. Hmm. But you got better as the years went on, and so by the time I was in my second year in thirteen, I could play second base, okay, and I could get on base about forty, forty-five percent of the time because I could hit the ball to the other second baseman, and he was as bad as I was, and so whoever he was, he was as bad as I was, and so and so consequently, I I had a really, really good get on base percentage, okay, and so you you do get better. Now basketball, I never got better at because I could never do anything with a basketball anyway, hmm. but. Um, so, uh, but I, I was, I 
in those days, all of the camps were sports camps, okay? Right. Or if there were trip camps, and I think Nabagamon probably existed at that time, but I was not even exposed to the possibility of another camp because the next-door neighbor and the upstairs neighbor were from Ojibwa. And in those days, this is from the city, okay? Right. And so and so you came into contact with the camp that you came into contact with. It's not like now where you can Google on the Internet and, 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 and find 14 boys' camps, okay? Right. It's, sure. it's, it's where you got it's where you got recommended but i guess the question is that while you may not have been very good at the sports were you a guy who liked sports um i i will say that i didn't mind the sports Mm -hmm. okay my relationship with camp my continuing relationship with camp not including the year in cabin 10 was the people Mm um particularly the counselors because um i was reasonably intelligent in those days uh, I've deteriorated since then, but I was sure. reasonably intelligent in those days. And um, I had very good relationships with a lot of the staff. And uh, for many, many years, I was coming back here for the people, not for the act- uh, not for the activities. Okay, sure. There is um, uh, the, the counselor that w- had the most effect on me was Lee Schneidman. Lee Schneidman was the, was the counselor in Cabin 13. He was a professor of history at... I want to say Fairleigh Dickinson University, but I may have the wrong university, um, who came up here during the summer. Um, He was a counselor in 13. However, he also did the Medicine Man, which was the camp newspaper, still is. And so I kind of got with him, okay, and, you know, he's a college professor. I was a reasonably smart kid, so by comparison to some of the conversations that you could have, I was probably (laughs) in the upper echelon if you stop and think about it. And um, so consequently... Um, I worked, I worked a lot on the medicine man. Okay. Mm. He made me feel important. Okay. Cause in those days, if you weren't a good athlete, you weren't considered to be really, really valuable for anything. Okay. Sure. Basically you were sludge. Okay. Um, uh, uh, toe jam, whatever you want to call it. Okay. But he found things for me to do that were, made me feel more important. And then he was my counselor for two, uh, for, uh, two years in cabin 13, one year, two years, maybe just one year. Uh, and he is the counselor that I have modeled myself after for all the years that I was a counselor, and I was a counselor up until three years ago. And I will tell you that from my memory, okay, sure. if you if you had a video of him in 1960 or 1961 being a counselor and you put it next to me, a video being a counselor over the years, you would find that there would be very little difference in terms of approach, in terms of... Uh, attitude in terms of how you talk to the kids, uh, in terms of how you treat them, and so forth and so on. He was he was my role model, and I have never not acknowledged. I have never not acknowledged that he was my role. He was the role model for my being a counselor. Excellent, and I will say that I think that in those days, uh, from my at least from my research and my talking with people in those days, that was a rarity to have a counselor who would take that approach with the kids. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just being the, the athlete guy. The, the counselors today spend much more time with the kids and are far more into the kids, okay? In those days, you had a lot of people, and, and, and I, I'm not casting aspersions, okay? Sure. Many right. people that you have interviewed or that you will interview did very good jobs up until about 830 
and then at eight thirty, it was <laughs> it was they turned off. They went out. Okay, right. very often leaving cabins uncovered because they would wait till um, Al would go by to say goodnight, and then they would sneak out the back door, which of course led to more bullying in cabin ten. But I don't want to go back to that anymore. Right. We'll keep. We may we may spend a whole lot of time in cabin ten, but it's not <laughs> going to be pleasant. Um, <laughs> Um, to, um, uh, it, it, it is different now than it was then, but the staff was devoted to camp, uh, certainly, uh, but, but not so much the inter, the immediate interaction with the kids, not like today, right. today, today staff sits and talks to the kids. Okay. In those days, staff was around and you might have a conversation with them it was an entirely different environment. Well, I think to be completely fair, a lot of that change has come from you. I mean, I think that you've influenced the staff over the years and have pushed camp more that way. Just I hope so. I, I think that you've had an effect on those guys. I mean, your relationship with the JCs over the years and connecting with the guys in 14 and really connecting with those guys as they grow up and become JCs and, and even first year and second year SCs. I think absolutely that your style of counseling and your style of running the cabin has influenced them and made them more likely to be well, that. That's nice of you to say. And I hope that that's the case because I've certainly tried to do that. Yeah, Absolutely. So you talked about the medicine man. Now I know that you will go on then to be the, the medicine man slash warrior guy. Well, after a one year spot after Schneidman left, okay, they didn't want to trust it to me. Okay. The Schwartzes did not want to trust it to me. So they gave the job to Shelley Gottlieb and I was the assistant editor for a year. Okay. Then Shelley Gottlieb left and they couldn't find anybody to put over me. So um, <laughs> that, that, that was when I inherited it. And at that point, are you a JC, an SC? At that time, I was an SC because I was only a JC for one year because I was part of the last mid-year graduation mm. in the Chicago schools. George Kerman and Marty Salzman and I and maybe Yogi Roosting all graduated mid-year, and so we only had one year as a JC instead of two. Gotcha. I think I think George actually mentioned that, too, that that was a very unusual case to only have the one year. Back. Oh, and Marty Salzman was the person who accomplished that because he called Al and said, I'm not coming back as a JC. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Uh, so I have copies of all the warriors from that period, uh, which is great, and all that stuff will soon be available at campojibwahistory.org. Uh, slowly over time, we're putting those in. But uh, they're very informative to tell you a lot about camp. What we do with the Warrior now is really kind of a photo book, and it's really about seeing images from the year. Well, but okay. what you did... As long as, long, as long as we're going to do this uh, uncensored, the Warrior is not an indication of what camp was. The Warrior was an indication of what camp was supposed to look like to people outside of camp. Uh, it stressed a lot of the non-athletic things mm. because the camp was had the had the reputation which to some extent it still has of being so competitive okay if you weren't a good athlete you couldn't enjoy yourself here and in fact I didn't for one year okay and if Schneidman right. hadn't been here I don't know that I that I would have continued to come back okay um, but if you look at those warriors you'll see that there's a big article on the talent show there's a big article on circus day <laughs> There's a big article on Gold Rush Day. Yes. There's a big article on this. Okay, and along about page 47, okay, uh, you'll find the league champions, okay, and you'll find like one page of Collegiate Week, okay, right. because all of this, all of the non-competitive stuff was supposed to be played up big in, in mm. the Warrior. Interesting. That's inside baseball. I, yeah, that. I mean, it makes sense, certainly. I, I No, as a marketing situation, I, 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 I am not... 
I am not being critical. I am being observant. Okay, let's let's be clear. I am not being critical of what of what was there. All I'm saying is is that because camp had this reputation, it was important for camp to show its other side also. And the way to show the other side also was to have all of these things in the warrior so that you could point to the fact that there was Circus Day and there was this and there was that and so forth and so on. Now, was the (coughs) philosophy the same for the Medicine Man? Yes. The Medicine Man, um, the headline was more likely to be talent show tonight than it was to be somebody scores 25 points. (laughs) Um, And I only ran, basically was asked to only run standings occasionally, okay? Mm. Because we had all these league standings and so forth and so on and like that. (coughs) So, and since people would send the medicine man home in those days, okay? um, We had letter writing day in which nobody ever wrote a letter. Okay, you basically folded up a medicine man and you put it in the envelope. Right. And... And parents to this day don't understand that the best letters that you get from camp are the ones that you don't get because if you don't get any letters from camp, the kid's having a good time. Absolutely. However, no mother has, including mine, has ever been <laughs> has ever been able to accept that as truth, and therefore they at least had to get an envelope. Okay. Yes. So consequently, the medicine man would get sent home, particularly on Mondays and Thursdays. And so Mondays and Thursdays, it was really important to have the medicine man play up some of the things that were not athletic. Again, legitimately, sure. okay, but this was important to the marketing of camp, and camp is a business. Absolutely. It's a business today. Absolutely. One of the things I love about the Old Warriors is the uh, every kid gets a personal acknowledgement of some form. Some It talks about every kid. In there, is, there is a write-up of every kid, and some of them, let me put it to you this way. Anytime you see the words, good man with a broom, you know the kid was nauseous. <laughs> Okay, because they couldn't think of anything good to say about him, so they would put in "good man with a broom." This is the key term in those old war. If they're if you're going to post them online, okay, you may want you may want to get automatic highlighter, get like um, uh, uh, where you where you you'll like you can word search uh, sure. whatever they call that. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as you see "good man with a broom," <laughs> forget it. Okay, this was a kid you didn't want to you didn't want to spend any time with. Uh. My apologies to anyone out there who may have actually been a good man with a broom. You you asked me to be you asked me to be honest with the with the blog and and with the podcast and I'm telling it like it is. Perfect. Okay, and in fairness, in cabin seven, my first year as a camper, I was a good man with a broom. <laughs> my second year as a camper. I don't remember what I was because that was the bully year. I've, right. I've tried to repress that. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you, actually. So a, a lot of the kids uh, also have a nickname in there. And one of the nicknames that's listed there for you is Ella Mike. So Yes. Somehow, somehow, so, it doesn't have a story. Okay. Oh, okay. Just, just everybody had nicknames and somehow somebody put my first name and my second name together. And the only person who still calls me that is George Kerman. Oh, okay. the only person who remembers it now that you've let it out there. God only knows how many people are going to call me that, <laughs> but it's better than some of the things I was called in cabin 10. Well, sure. Uh, I, I, I thought, uh, I expected it to be maybe someone like maybe Mike Bagan or someone you hung out with a lot no, or something no, like no, that. My no. middle name is Michael. Oh, well, there so we go. it was, it was just, it was just a, 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 a whatever you call now it. Now we've got it. If you've ever wondered what the M in, E.M. Friedman was. Now that, you know. That is that is that is what it is. Excellent. It is not is not Meshuggah. Uh, so talking, staying with the camper years a little bit. We've talked about the guys who uh, were bullies, and we've talked about some of the counselors. Were there uh, guys who were your 
were there guys who were also in the cabin with you who you ended up being great friends with along the way? Um, there is nobody from that era that I am still in touch with at this time. Uh, I can remember several people. There was another Friedman, Donnie Friedman, okay? Um, Steve Schoen was from Rockford. Um, there were, I, I don't remember, uh, uh, I was in a cab with Howie Horwitz in cabin 12. Um, the people who were bullied worse than me, we certainly, okay. So I, as much as I have camp friends, the sure. camp friends were not my, my continuing camp friends from my era were either a year older than me or a year younger than me. Um, except me, except for George Kerman, that, mm-hmm. that would be the only person in, and, I see him, <coughs> number one, because he comes up here during the summer, and number two, because his daughter and my niece were roommates at college. Oh, okay. There we go. You can never get away from the Ojibwe connection. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the relationship the campers had with Alan Pearl at the time. For me, part of this po- part of the project is I never met Pearl or Al, obviously. My first year at camp was the year Al died, so even uh, there was no shot. Uh, but I, I've often said that you can't be at camp for more than five minutes without feeling the influence of Al Schwartz. I well, my, my relationship with Al Schwartz was extremely good as a camper as well as as a staff man, okay? Um, I, well, Al liked everybody, so I'm not going to sit here and say Al liked me, okay, like it was, like, it was, uh, like there were four people at camp that he liked and right. I was one of the four, okay? Right. Um, Al liked everybody. Um, Al was very easy to talk to. Um, he, um, he influenced me in a number of ways, but more as a staff person than as a camper. Mm-hmm. Um, Pearl was a very interesting person. She was, um, she was a very strict type of person. Her personality was strict. Okay. Um, she was very methodical. Um, and, um, you, you, you tried to, you tried to stay on her good side if you could. Mm. Her bad side was not a real good place to be. <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> I think I said that in a very appropriate way. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so moving on to you being a staff man, you come back as a JC. Now, when you come back as a JC, are you playing in the leagues? Yes. And I played catcher when I was a JC. Apparently, I had deteriorated over the course of that year. Um, they, they let me try pitching one day, and the only reason that I lasted the whole game was because the umpire was being really nice to me because every everything was a fastball. Okay, there was no there 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 was there was no there was no such there was no such thing as a as an arc on my pitch. Um, it was more like a small boat. Okay. Um, get it, arc small boat. Yes. Just want to make sure that the audience is paying attention. <laughs> this would be the spot. This would be the spot where if somebody dozed off, they'll wake up and try to figure out how the hell we got to an arc. Okay, <laughs> uh, which is a good thing because we want people to stay awake for these things. Yes. Um, but uh, yes, the JCs paid. $75 to come to camp and wait tables and work, okay? <laughs> right. But we paid to come up here and work for the entire summer, and our reward for paying, okay, the $75 was ostensibly for laundry um, because they had to call it something, so I guess they told us we had to pay for our own laundry. Sure. Um, was that we got to play in Watermelon League, which, of course, for me was no joy whatsoever, um, but uh, I was going to come to camp, and I did, and, and so forth and so on. So, yes, yeah. that was the situation. 
That's a pretty good business model. Maybe we could bring that back in some fashion. Like, well, getting every getting staff to pay seventy five dollars to come here as a part owner of the camp, I think, is a really good idea. <laughs> but I don't know that it's going to fly. <laughs> Maybe we could just pick the ones that have to pay their way back in. <laughs> oh, I got three. I got three right now. I could tell you. That's terrible. Uh, so you're a JC. Do you remember what cabins you're in? Who your staff? Oh, of course, I was in cabin two. Um, with Bobby Wolf was one of the counselors. I don't remember. I frankly don't remember the other counselors. Um, David Matazar was my camper that year. And I had him for like seven out of eight years that he was a camper. Um, and, uh, I was in cabin two and that was the first time I was in an old cabin. Okay. As opposed to a new one, you had to shut the shutters from outside because mm. it was shutters. Um, and I was probably an okay JC. Okay. I mean, I did my job. Right. Uh, I was a very good waiter. Artie Berman told me I was the best waiter he ever had. I would actually go and get him cold milk in the morning to make sure he had cold milk. Except one day it was like 42 degrees outside. And I said, Artie, I got you your milk. He says, why'd you do that? It's 42 freaking 42 degrees outside. Um, but I did, I, I did my job and I would tend to spend then a lot of time with the kids okay to some extent that didn't play well with other people mm-hmm. uh in camp because um and i wasn't trying to be a role model for anybody it was just that that was what i thought the job was and that's what i did and sure. i did it more than other people and sometimes that would come to the front and 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 cause me some concern you know some some problems you know, with my peers but that was what i did sure but i was a jc for one year and then i was an sc I was an SC actually with George Kerman, and then after that first year, I was always an SC by myself because mm-hmm. Al and Mickey recognized that I was a really good counselor, okay? And I didn't want another SC because then I could run cabins the way that I wanted to, sure. which was not necessarily the way everybody else ran their cabins, right. okay? And so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have to go, you know, and do anything other than what it was that I wanted to do with the cooperation of JCs, which I always had. Right. Who were the JCs that you had in those early days that stick out for you? Uh, well, uh, Hank Karan- uh, Joel Kransky and uh, Jim Nachman were in eight. I remember who I was in 10 with. Um, I was in 10 with um, Freddie Burns and uh, I can't remember the other guy, but that was, that was really good. In 11, it was just me and Steve Hamer, mm. just two staff, okay? Which, again, I spent almost all my time with the kids, so it wasn't a problem, and then I was in 13. Nice. And then you were in 13 from then on, basically? I was in 13 starting in 1968. Um, in those days, I was considered to be the fourth counselor, and there were only three. Ah. Yeah, everybody got that one? Okay. Um I got in there because I had been there long enough that when I asked to be in there, they couldn't say no. Sure. Okay. I was not considered to be necessarily the perfect counselor for 13 in those days because I was not an athlete. Right. And I will tell you that in those days, not being an athlete marked you in a different way than Mm. certainly than it does today, because today we, we pay almost no attention to that. We, we look, we look to people, but in those days, athletics was important because the camp was a jock camp to a very large extent. And so the kids who came here were really good athletes, and they were not necessarily going to look up to or respect somebody who wasn't a good athlete because that was that was the, that was was their their view of the world. Sure. Yeah. That's definitely something that's changed over the years. Um, 
and partially because society has changed. I mean, we do, we don't get those premier athletes because camps don't get that. Uh, a camp like this well, doesn't get that anymore. And by the, by the same token, in 1963, I think I might have ref two softball games, and by 1969, I was considered to be the camp's best official. Okay, because eventually you find out that them what can does and them what can't teaches. Okay, and so this is a situation where I was very good at the things that did not require physical dexterity that were related to sports, okay? Hmm. You don't necessarily have to be able to throw a ball to be able to figure out whether the ball got to first base before the batter did. True story. One thing I've heard a lot about from your staff days is you're bringing stereos to camp. Oh, I was the first person to bring a stereo to camp. 1964, in Cabin 6, I brought a stereo to camp, and somebody else then got a stereo sent up, Ricky Kanoff, okay? He was in Cabin 5. Now, I listen to Broadway, and Ricky Kanoff listens to hard rock. And so it was okay <laughs> if either one of us was playing music, but if both of us were playing music at the same time, it became a war of the roses to try to figure out who could drown out the other one, Okay. <laughs> But, uh, but by the same token, my cabins over the years learned a lot of Broadway, okay? Sure. And they learned a lot about Broadway. And I have campers who, to this day, former campers who, to this day, can sing the entire soliloquy from Carousel, which is seven and a half minutes long, because they listen to it every single day for seven and a half weeks. <laughs> and all I would have to do is start it, okay? It would be like Harold Hill starting uh, the um, the um, uh, barbershop quartet in The Music Man, okay? If I, if I do the first three words, they'll just go right on with it for the whole thing because it is emblazoned <laughs> in their memories. That is uh, that's definitely something that's gotten a lot of press on the podcast is people talking about your stereo over no, the years and uh, and stacks and stacks of records and things stacks like that. and stacks and stacks of records and so forth. But it was it was my part of camp. Okay, it made it and and it it, it has added it's added since. Remember when we used to do the minstrel shows? Okay, the same songs were sung every single year. Okay. When they went to the Jubilee, they did different songs every year. Mm. And so there was very little carryover from year to year on the music, okay? The stuff that I was playing carried over from year to year. And the kids that I, I used to have the same kids every year for several years, they would all ask for me, sure. okay? And, I, and I, would have the same, I would have the same cabin, you know, the same cabin group. And they liked the music, okay? They, they learned to like it. Good, uh, a good side story. So what my, my, camper, my former camper, David Matazar, comes home from camp. And he says to his mother, had recounted the story, his mother goes, so I want to go to the record store and get some records. So she's putting on her coat, and she says, what records do you want, me, want to get? So he's listing Hello, Dolly, Carousel, Oklahoma, and like that. She couldn't wait to get to the car, because here was a kid who had never listened to a song like that in his <laughs> life, and he now wants to buy the classic Broadway music. And she says she shot to the, she said she was afraid that she was afraid that the fog was going to lift, and she was going to get to that record store before the magic ended. <laughs> In those early staff days, you had several jobs at camp, Medicine Man, Warrior being part of it. One of the other things you did, tell me a little bit about movie night. Well, Mike Bagan and I tried to take over picking the movies because Al used to pick the movies, and Al loved westerns. So mm -hmm. there was no, there was every two years we would get Pancho Villa and uh, and like that, sure. okay. And, Guns and, of the Navarone. Oh, and, well, the Guns of Navarone was not a western. 
But with Guns of Navarone was okay, all right? But, I see. But some, but some of the other crap that we... Vera Cruz, okay? I remember Vera Cruz. You could just about quote it, okay? Because it showed up every two years. So um, Mike Bagan and I uh, got Al to agree that we could choose the movies. And the guy that we used to get the movies from, they, would, they could arrive by boat. You never knew when the movie was going to show up. And so we took that over and, uh, and, and, and improved it significantly because we had a better feel of what the kids would want. Plus, I spent a significant amount of time getting catalogs from the different places where you could get movies. Remember, mm. this is 16 millimeter. Sure. Um, and trying to, you know, and you know, some places you know, gave a discount if you took four movies from that particular spot mm. and so forth and so on. And, but movie night, movie night was, um, was every Saturday night. Uh, 16 millimeter projector, which I under, which I know is part of the Ojuba Museum. It is. I was very excited to see that sucker because that <laughs> was the second version. That was one that threaded itself. The first one we had to thread. Okay, <laughs> and Mike and I, Mike and I used to have races to see who could thread the, the film faster because if at the end of the first reel, if you hadn't dropped the bomb by that point, the kids would all want to leave the rec hall. So the trick was to get the movie switched so that it was as if it was an, a, a, continu, a continuous movie. Sure, that makes sense. So you could show The Day the Earth Stood Still because the spaceship lands in the first 10 minutes. Mm. The Guns of Navarone, if you stop and think about The Guns of Navarone, it's about 25, 30 minutes before Gregory Peck starts to climb that mountain. And so as good as that movie is, it's, plus the sound in the rec hall stunk to high heaven. No matter where you put the speaker, no matter what you did, the, it had an echo like there was no tomorrow. Not and built for acoustics. That, nope. uh, it, is, it, is acoustic, <laughs> it is acoustically probably the worst place next to your bathroom, okay? Yes. Because there is no acoustically good bathroom, as we all know, for different reasons. Um, but the... Um, <laughs> But the uh, so so but we we took over the movies and I suppose you want me to tell the story of the taking of Pelham one two. Three. Well, I was going to ask that of all the movie stories I've heard, there's one that sticks out. Well, okay, so so I used to pick them. Uh, so I'm now picking the movies. Mike is no longer a staff person, and I get the catalogs. And in those days, this particular catalog did not have the movie ratings. Okay, like uh, the, the movie ratings existed at that time, but this one didn't have it. And I had seen this movie uh, two or three years before, and I said, and and I remembered, and I said, this would be a good movie for camp, The Taking of Pelham One Two Three with Walter Matthau, and the movie is about these guys who Shanghai a subway train, okay, and so you know how the hell are they going to get out of the tunnel and so forth and so on. There's all this byplay between the, the between the head crook and Walter Matthau, who is the um, transit police lieutenant, okay, and. The movie, unfortunately, was rated R, but I didn't know that. So, and the reason that it was movie, the reason it was rated R was because of its language. There was nothing other than its language that was bad. And Al was sitting and watching this movie because I had told him, "Al, it's a really good movie. So why why not cut your why not cut your throat yourself?" So <laughs> Al is sitting and watching this movie, and about fifteen minutes into the movie, he goes a little bit nuts, stops the movie, and says, "If I hear one more thing like that." Uh, the movie is cut. Okay, not five minutes later, the the mayor's assistant is talking to the mayor and says to the mayor that he's going to have to pay the ransom. And the mayor, sitting up in bed with a cold, says, "And I quote: Shit, piss, fuck." Okay. <laughs> Al had never moved that quickly before, and probably never moved that quickly since. That was that was that was an immediate. Okay, and the aftermath of it was that. 
Um, I got yelled at for it. Now, I admit that I made, made a mistake, okay? But I didn't do it on purpose. I wasn't right. trying to sneak in an R-rated movie like, <laughs> see if I can get away with this. But it, it, has become, it has become folklore of Ojibwa, and the people who were there, when they tell the story, always quote the line, because they remember the line that shot Al right out of his seat. And I mean right out of his seat. That, that We didn't get two more words of that movie out before that thing was cut off. Okay, that is it. Elliot, classic replay in the books. Uh, is there a better raconteur at Camp Ojibwa than Elliot Friedman? That story about the taking of Pelham 123, I cannot tell you how many guys have told me that story from experiencing it in the room or hearing it secondhand, uh, but it's always great to get it right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. We chose Elliot today uh, because we have a special new guest tomorrow, a guest that Elliot knows well, a guest that was part of, with Elliot, one of the greatest camp stories that, that ever happened. So come back tomorrow, uh, hear one more new episode for this OJ90 week. Check that out. Uh, as always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop me an email at Christopher at CampOjibwaHistory.org. Swing by OJ90.com and pick up your tickets and your hotel reservations for the event. And of course, swing by CampOjibwaHistory.org. See what's doing over there. See what updates are in place. And maybe pick up a brick before they all go away. But for me... I'm going outside to have a cigar. <laughs> <laughs>